Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin. As the war in Ukraine continues, there's mounting concern about where this conflict may be headed, including the use of chemical weapons. Will Russia use them as they may become increasingly desperate to have some kind of victory in this war? Joining us today, I'm happy to say, is Craig Forces once again, but also Jez Littlewood, a policy analyst, a former colleague of mine at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, and an expert in weapons of mass destruction. And today he is appearing on the podcast in a personal capacity. Jez, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi, Craig. Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks, Jess, for joining us. We thought today there's been a lot of media, obviously, about the prospect of weapons of mass destruction in the Ukraine conflict. I thought it might be useful, first, though, Jess, to step back and talk a little bit about the overall international infrastructure for regulating weapons of mass destruction. And so we're talking chemical, biologic, uh, and, and also nuclear, and then turn our attention to past use in recent history before looking at the specifics of the Ukraine conflict right now. Could you give us a sense of the state of play right now when it comes to regulating these three types of arms? Sure. Thanks, Craig. I'll start with the nuclear side. Predominantly, the regulation on that side is through the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty of 1970. And that basically states parties to that, of which all countries, with the exception of India, Israel, Pakistan, and North Korea, the DPRK, are, are members of the NPT, creates two classes of states. There are the recognized nuclear weapon states, which are the United Kingdom, France, China, Russia, and the United States, and all others who essentially agree to forego the possession of nuclear weapons. There's also a kind of additional agreements and newer agreements, the most notable of which is the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which entered into force last year. Many, in fact, all of the nuclear weapon states and many of their allies, which includes Canada, EU members, etc., have refused to join to date the Treaty on the Prohibition of nuclear weapons or the ban treaty as it's often called and there is a range of kind of non-proliferation obligations around nuclear weapons in essence the international atomic energy agency based in vienna regulates the peaceful uses of nuclear capabilities in terms of nuclear power etc and ensures that states are compliant with their safeguard agreement, which essentially means in practice that your nuclear activities are for peaceful purposes as opposed to being diverted to weapons purposes. The kind of the headline case in the nuclear world at this point in time is Iran and the Iran deal. And North Korea is somewhat separate because it left the NPT. Iran is still a state party to the NPT. So that's it on the nuclear front. Yes, um, just, just a question here. So you've yeah. spoken about proliferation concerns. So just to be clear here, then there is not an international treaty that regulates use of nuclear weapons for a country like Russia, which is allowed to have nuclear weapons under the NPT. No, we think we often talk about use as a taboo. So the only two cases of use are at the end of World War II in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we've had no nuclear weapons use since that point in time. And so by tradition of non-use, uh, it gives rise to what people think about as a taboo or a norm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons obviously involves a prohibition of use, but we would be reliant on international legal opinion which essentially says that it would be very, very difficult to justify the use of a nuclear weapon in terms of international humanitarian law with issues such as proportionality and widespread casualties among civilian populations. So there isn't 
the treaty that prohibits use that would essentially prohibit what we would think about as the major powers or the great powers. But that's not to say that anyone can use nuclear weapons and expect to get away with it, either in an international humanitarian context or indeed in, in terms of others responding to it. Right. So the this issue that I've seen reported recently, and maybe we can return to it, about the use of scaled down or battlefield nuclear weapons, where the yield on the nuclear weapon is such that it's actually less significant than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so it has a tactical impact. Uh, that's not regulated by a specialized regime for a country like Russia, which is allowed to have nuclear weapons under the NPT, but its use would be regulated by rules on international humanitarian law concerning targeting and proportionality. Yep. As with all weapons, the international humanitarian law kicks in. And you're right, with the smaller scale nuclear weapons, when you're getting to lower yields, uh, whether they are tactical or whether they are very low yields, you would still, in one sense, be crossing a very significant line, which is you have just used nuclear weapons, which of course would be the first time since the sort of middle of 1945 and the end of World War II. Great. Wonderful. Okay. So why don't we move on then in terms of our pantheon of scary things? So chemical and biologic, where do you want to start? I'll start with biological because it's somewhat easier. So the Biological Weapons Convention, or as Canada and the UK call it, the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention, was negotiated in the late 1960s. It was opened for signature in 1972, entered into force in 1975. It's a short treaty. It's slightly over four pages long. It's comprehensive in terms of its scope, but it lacks detailed provisions on how you would implement it. Now, in one sense, this is important in the contemporary period, but historically, we've not actually seen much biological weapons use. In fact, we look at this, the best works which document use. The key points have been that actually you don't really see very effective in terms of it has an impact on the outcome of a conflict of biological weapons use. In a state context, really the last known confirmed use was by Japan during World War II in China. We've seen a lot of historical state-level programs of biological weapons up until the late 1960s. And since then, the concern with the convention has been compliance with it and the inability to actually have a kind of the international legal architecture which verifies compliance with the BWC. If we use the U.S. annual compliance report to Congress, the U.S. has concerns really about four states in terms of biological weapons. Last year, it openly said that Russia was in violation of the BWC, the Biological Weapons Convention. It has concerns about North Korea, and it has concerns about the activities of China and Iran. But it was clear that they weren't actually accusing or being openly accusing China, Iran of being in violation of the BWC. The other issue in terms of biological weapons in the sort of the more contemporary period has, of course, been the issue of bioterrorism. But again, we see few actual cases in reality, and most of these are very low level. They're really quite basic. So things like ricin, although it's a toxin, is covered by the Biological Weapons Convention. The bigger concern are more sophisticated kind of programs that might involve the release of aerosolized agents like anthrax, which is where you get into the potentially thousands, by some estimates, hundreds of thousands or more casualties may occur. But we've never, ever seen that scale of use in history. Just, just on the biological weapons as compared to nuclear. So my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
is that the prohibitions on the use of biological weapons include not just proliferation, but also actual implementation or use. So it puts it on a slightly different footing than our conversation just now on nuclear weapons. On the other hand, it's difficult to imagine a strategic and tactical advantage to biological weapons, at least in the recent past, because tactically there's an incubation rate. And so it probably doesn't change things on the ground too quickly. And then strategically, once you let your agent out of the bottle, there's a risk, of course, that it will blow back on you, perhaps literally blow back on you and infect both your own forces and your own civil population. And so uh, from a strategic point of view, it's not necessarily been that useful. Am, am I right in those observations? Yeah, I think in terms of the observation, in terms of the prohibition, yes. So if we look at the BWC, it's quite clear. It's, its full name is the Convention on the Prohibition of the, the Development, Production and Stockpiling of Biological and Toxin Weapons. So it's a disarmament agreement. Everybody who joins it agrees to basically get rid of the, their biological weapons. And it's underpinned, of course, by the 19 25 Geneva Protocol, which is a prohibition on the use of both chemical and biological weapons. So here we do have this very clear line that the use of biological weapons would be in violation of the Geneva Protocol. And for those who are states parties to the BWC, because use entails either at some point in time development, production or stockpiling, then you've violated the BWC as well. In terms of the, the actual weapons and the risks, it is right. There are issues around that. It's also important to note that biological weapons allow you to have a potential spectrum of uses. So we can think on the, the much lower end of the scale, covert use, whether for very directed assassination or covert use to you know, contaminate an area or target and we can think about targeting humans as well as animals and plants here. If your disease-causing organism essentially spreads from person to person, so for one simple context today, something like influenza or our most recent experience, COVID. So if it spreads person to person, then you absolutely do run these risks, as you mentioned, Craig, that of, of much wider spread that can't be controlled. If you use an agent which does not spread from one person to another, and anthrax is a good example, then you can target specific area. But the use of biological weapons, as will become clear when we talk about chemical weapons, is you need to think about the local weather condition and your operational environment, because that has important implications for how successful or not such a violation of the convention would be. And again, just to underline, historically, we have never seen large-scale use of biological weapons. And then the other aspect that you mentioned the international regime for the safeguard for nuclear weapons. There is not, though, as best I know, an equivalent for biological weapons, added to which there's a provision, as I understand it, in the convention for what we can call defensive research into biological weapons, which I suspect might complicate the verification regime were it to exist because uh, presumably if you're doing research into defense that could be pivoted relatively quickly into offense am i right with uh, any of that yeah you are you've touched on all the kind of key challenges and like many things the devil lies in the detail of what you are concerned about so if we look at the key prohibition it's on the development production and stockpiling in the bwc so research is not mentioned so in one sense research activity is put in a different side but it's important to recognize biological weapon is any kind of microbial or other biological agent or toxin, whatever its origin or method of production of types and in quantities that have no justification for prophylactic, protective or other peaceful purposes. Now, that's a mouthful and can be complicated to understand. We think about this as what we call the general purpose criterion. And in effect, it means any 
disease-causing organism is covered by the BWC. So to, to use a kind of an everyday example, if I was suddenly feeling that I needed a bit of beauty treatment and wanted to go and get a botulinum toxin in injection, I can go get my Botox. And that's perfectly legitimate and that's perfectly okay. If, however, I was dabbling, and let me be clear, this is an example. If I was dabbling and I managed to get hold of some botulinum toxin and I was using it in my kitchen or something to think, oh, I maybe do something interesting with that. If I cannot justify that possession for prophylactic, protective, or other peaceful purposes, then I'm falling afoul of Canadian national law. And in this example, if Canada was doing things that cannot be justified for prophylactic, which of course we think about as medical, protective is the defense side, and other peaceful purposes, we think about laboratories, industry, academia, etc. So biodefense can be challenged, but the key issue is the BWC it's a prohibition on not on actual things. There isn't a list that says this is banned and this is not banned. It's okay because it's not on that list. It's a prohibition on purposes and what you are doing with what are effectively disease-causing organisms in nature, in laboratories, in industry, etc. So biodefense does pose some challenges and there is no, as you mentioned, no kind of compliance architecture in the same way that there is for the, in the nuclear weapons world for the IAEA, or when we get into the chemical weapons world, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW. All right, so let's talk chemical weapons then. Chemical weapons seem to straddle and perhaps the conversation we've had so far about nuclear and biologic in the sense that it's regulated by a treaty regime. It's It has a robust verification a system, therefore, is more analogous to the nuclear weapons side of the equation. And yet, unlike the nuclear weapons side, it also includes a prohibition on use, not just simply development and stockpiling. So maybe you could explain to us this chemical weapons convention, which is of the instruments we've been talking about is the newest, as I understand it, and also the longest. <laughs> It is in both counts. So the Chemical Weapons Convention was negotiated on and off through the 1980s. During the late 1980s, negotiations picked up and were completed in the early 1990s. So the Chemical Weapons Convention was opened for signature in 1993. It entered into force in 1997. So actually next month, we will see the 25th anniversary of the OPCW and the CWC. It's considered by some as the kind of the archetype disarmament treaty for the reasons you mentioned, Craig, that its prohibitions are broad and it has very structured and quite rigorous verification procedures. So to talk about its, its key obligations, as you mentioned, it's a prohibition not to develop, produce, acquire, stockpile, retain, transfer or use chemical weapons. And that is to anyone. It doesn't explicitly say states, it's to, to anyone. And it's a prohibition on engaging in activities which will allow you to use chemical weapons or indeed to assist or encourage anybody else to use them. And as you mentioned, it's a fairly lengthy treaty. It's got a fairly rigorous verification structure. There is an international organization, the OPCW, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, based in The Hague in the Netherlands, which oversees the kind of the day-to-day -day aspects of it. And as of January of this year, very good news in one sense was the OPCW was able to report that 99% of the declared chemical weapons stockpiles have been destroyed under international verification. And the only declared stockpile that is still currently being destroyed is that of the United States and the under verification. We have a pretty good 
insight into that publicly, as well as for the OPCW even in more detail. And we expect the US to complete its destruction by the end of 2023. So that's the good news. The less good news, as we're all aware, is over the last decade, we've seen a return of chemical weapons use in different kinds of theaters in different ways. Syria is the classic, or rather the most potent example. But looking across the spectrum, we've seen two uses, only suspected by Russia, on use in the United Kingdom in March 2018 in Salisbury, the other in 2020, the attempted assassination of Navalny. Uh, We've also seen use by what was the Islamic State or still the Islamic State in the kind of Iraq Syria theater. And we've had the assassination of Kim Jong-un's brother or half-brother in that airport in Malaysia in in 2017. So we've seen a kind of a return of chemical weapons, which is is the the worrying side of the ledger on on this issue. So just a quick question. So in 2006, I was in the UK then, there was a fairly notorious incident with someone who ran afoul of the Russian government, Alexander Litvinenko. He was poisoned with radiation. Would we consider that a chemical weapon or would we consider that more of a nuclear weapon actually for the purpose of this discussion? It's a, it's a good question, Stephanie. In one sense, the polonium-210 suspected of being the cause. Of, in one sense, if a chemical weapon can be any chemical, but polonium-210, and here I would want to be basically phoning my nuclear friends in more detail, it's not something discussed in the CWC or that this was a use. Chemical weapon is a source that's more on the nuclear, radionuclei scale as opposed to the chemical side. But a chemical weapon does include any chemical and the issue here is about you're using a chemical and it's and for its toxic properties to cause harm or death or injury so for me it's i would not include polonium 210 in my list of chemical weapons uses but i can recognize in a sense if you were doing this as a venn diagram it's like yeah okay i'll have an interesting discussion about that and be willing to be told explicitly why or why not it is depending on the arguments yeah, either way, it just seems really unpleasant. It's an unpleasant, absolutely. That's absolutely, yes. Could be to- toxicological, right? So maybe it's BWC territory. Yeah, it doesn't really It doesn't really fit because BWC relies on disease-causing mm. organisms, which are live in one sense, uh, and uh, polonium-210 doesn't fit in that okay. category. All right, so we have our three categories. Uh, and of the three, we've seen use in the recent past of one, chemical weapons. And so perhaps we should drill down on why it is that chemical weapons have proven more difficult to regulate, at least in practice. And let me throw out a theory, and perhaps you could respond to it, that the chemicals are dual use in a way that even exceed what's true for nuclear and biologic in the sense that most things in manufacturing involve some sort of chemicals. And so it becomes more difficult thereafter for a verification regime to determine the use to which chemicals are put and perhaps to establish what a facility is being used for because of that dual use prospect. It's subject to the caveat that some agents, I understand from the Chemical Weapons Convention, are outright banned, but even otherwise benign agents, you can do something pretty terrible with them. Take chlorine, for instance, if scaled up. Is that correct assumption about why chemical weapons are both accessible to a lot of states and difficult to regulate? Yes, if yes, if we want to be pessimistic about this, if we think about some of the really nasty chemical weapons out there. So when the CWC was being negotiated and devised, like all treaties, you have an eye on the future, but you're thinking about what's our problem. And the problem was, what are our known 
or strongly suspected significant chemical weapons stockpiles of things like sulfur mustard or the nerve agents like sarin or VX, et cetera. And the objective is a world free of chemical weapons, but the verification provisions are predominantly focused on militarily significant stockpiles of chemical weapons. Because as we've seen with assassination attempts, Skripal in the Skripals in, in Salisbury in 2018, Valny um, in Russia, etc. You've got a wide potential spectrum of uses. When people talk about wide-scale chemical use, in their minds is more likely to be from Western states, the experience in World War I, where you have large-scale use. More recently, if you go back to the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s, when Iraq was making extensive use, and probably for most people prior to Syria, the Iraqi use against the Kurds in the town of Halajba is probably one of the key defining moments from 1989, when against an unprotected population, chemical weapons were used and killed up to 5,000 people. And then the uses in Syria more recently. But the Chemical Weapons Convention, in one sense, it covers all chemicals, and that's something that's often overlooked. But for verification purposes, to handle the military kind of declared stockpiles, it has what it's called a Schedule 1, 2, and 3. And in simple terms, Schedule 1 are the kind of the classic chemical warfare agents like sulfur mustard or the nerve agents for which there are really no peaceful uses. And so you are allowed to have schedule one chemicals in a single small scale facility for your defensive purposes. So if you want to test whether your respirators are working for your military, whether your protective equipment works. And that is highly controlled in the sense of you have to declare and make clear every year, this is how much I expect you produce. This is how much we use. This is what we did with it. So it's almost a complete prohibition, Craig, but it's not an absolute. There are no uses for this. There are the defense aspects. So that's the schedule one. The schedule two are the chemical warfare agents or the precursors you need to create the really nasty stuff that's in Schedule 1, for which there are legitimate peaceful uses, but it's a fairly limited scope. And then you get into what's called the Schedule 3, where there are some risks to the convention in terms of potential military uses, but those chemicals are in widespread use for legitimate purposes. And so the verification regime focuses on the kinds of production facilities that are predominantly Schedule 2 and Schedule 3, but it also does cover what's called discrete organic chemicals, which is any chemical production facility could be looked at just to ensure that there's no chemical weapons production. And so on the negative side, if we want to be pessimistic about this, are there production facilities worldwide where someone could sneak in a chemical weapon? even a quite basic chemical weapon. And we have to hold our hand up to one sense and say, yeah, you can't rule that out. But it's not something we've seen. It's not something the, the OPCW has detected. And the verification regime works pretty well. And we have a relatively high degree of confidence in it. Primarily because, and here's the other aspect of all these weapons, is there has to be an intent. You have to have the intent, like I am going to, basically use weapons which are prohibited 
in international law. And that's a line that many states have no interest in crossing or the intention of ever crossing. And that's to our, that's to our strength. The normative constraints on here beyond the legal constraints are, are to our advantage. But what's your level of confidence that we'll use Russia as an example. Russia does not have some secret stockpile of chemical weapons. I can't answer that publicly because I don't have access to the material, but my level of confidence, I would be leaning towards the OPCW has overseen the destruction of Russia's declared stockpile. If Russia wants to violate the CWC, then it's getting into some really difficult territory. And so does Russia really want to be on the wrong side of the legal aspects here? And I suppose in what, what we're seeing in the Ukraine discussions at the moment is both sides accusing the other, at least in the media context, of preparing for the use of chemical weapons, which is worrying, but also speaks to the robustness of the normative and legal constraints against the use of chemical weapons, because this is seen as crossing a line. This is something significant. And that, that's the kind of a sticky challenge at this moment in time, because we don't know how that's going to play out. So I guess this is where kind of my questions come from in the sense that, as you say, there's been a lot of talk about this. One of the reasons we wanted to have you on the podcast, but also you've seen a lot of pre-bunking or so it's been called, right? The fact that the United States and the United Kingdom have basically said, look, we believe that Russia is preparing to use chemical weapons and it's going to do some kind of false flag incident in order to basically blame the Ukrainians for doing so. And I believe that information has now also been shared with the EU, who has also now declared that they believe that information is credible. So uh, there's a number of questions that come from that. Obviously, you don't have a crystal ball in, into Putin's mind. None of us do. But the likelihood of doing so based on all of the evidence that you provided earlier on suggesting that Russia does have an active chemical weapons program and is willing to use it. And then second of all, I'd be interested in your opinion, because you're also an expert in intelligence on use of intelligence in this way to pre-bunk with a view of trying to prevent the use of chemical weapons in this conflict. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting and challenging question, Stephanie. In terms of the Russian chemical weapons program, I would certainly come down on the side of if we look at the use of chemical weapons for assassination purposes and the attempts in the UK and the attempt in Russia on Navalny's life, then it's like Russia has some form of active program, but it's small scale in its assassination purposes, which is a different challenge to Will you use your artillery or your air force or your multiple launch rocket systems armed with chemical weapons, which is that the past military significant program. So I think that's one, one aspect here. At this stage, I would be very surprised and also to be honest with you, very concerned if we see chemical weapons use from a military force. So if we start getting reports of artillery barrages, which involve chemical weapons or aircraft dropping bombs with chemical weapons, that's of great concern for two reasons. One is Russia has managed to create a stockpile or create weapons under the OPCW regime. And that brings into question as we go forward, hey, is the CWC actually robust enough? I think on the pre-bunking side, um, we start to see this in the Syrian context, and it comes from Syria and Russia, where it's hardly a month went by 
when they would make an announcement or they would leak or place stories in their favorable press that you know, terrorists or rebel groups or those opposed to the, uh, the Syrian regime preparing to use chemical weapons and it was going to be a false flag uh, operation intended to get, draw the West into the conflict. And none of the really had any substance. In fact, last year, the OPCW kind of put out a note that said, we've had over 80 allegations made by Syria in this context. None of them provide sufficient information for us to actually launch a fact-finding mission or look into this any, any further, because the evidence was simply not there. Jumping into the Ukraine context and the kind of the pre-bunking side, we've now, we're now in a situation two to three weeks into this kind of, they are going to do it, no, the other side is going to do it, where the claims are feeding off each other into this kind of tangent, which is a bit of a rabbit hole and hard to get out of. What, from my perspective, what I'm more worried about is it's less the classic chemical warfare agents of sarin sulfur mustard it's the use potentially of what is a toxic industrial chemical so a chemical which exists for legitimate purposes may be stored and if there is a use or an allegation of use involving toxic industrial chemicals you don't need artillery for that and that that's going to make life difficult in terms of getting on the ground and being able to validate, was this actually used and was it used as a chemical weapon? Because you could, you could hit a chemical storage facility by accident with your artillery barrage. So if it's by accident, it's not actual chemical warfare. But if, you've, if you are targeting it purposefully or you are releasing it purposefully, then you are getting into chemical warfare territory. And in reality, in modern battlefields, you get a lot of chemical release by virtue of you blow up an apartment complex, even in simple terms. Once you start fracturing fridges and things like that, there are chemicals released into the air. And that's not what we're talking about in chemical warfare. So... There are some challenges here. Rebunking, there are some advantages potentially in laying out. We think you are doing this or preparing to do this. We are ready to respond to it. I'm not entirely convinced it works. And the cynic in me also looks at what is the advantage here for us as Western states to continue to point to these allegations which so far have not yet materialized? And there is a risk if we don't see chemical weapons use, and I sincerely hope we do not, but there is a risk that we end up back in the kind of the Iraq 2002, 2003 intelligence uses, the misuse of intelligence for policy purposes, et cetera. And so it is a double-edged issue. And I'm, I am beginning to have some concerns about, are we debasing the value of intelligence because this becomes another cry wolf situation? Well, Jess, honestly, I think I'd be very happy if it turns out it's cry wolf at this point, given the, yes, given yes. the uh, weapons we've been talking about in this podcast. So I, we'd like to thank you for coming on to the podcast, Jess, and walking us through what is a very complex area. Certainly, there's been a lot of discussion about it, and it's been very helpful to have essentially this primer on this complicated area of international relations and law. So thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Stephanie.